You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Very early this morning, Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation CEO Lori Kaikina opened the doors to the Pearl Ridge Rail Station to show how it has resolved the problems with cracks in the columns. They were discovered in a section they call hammerheads, the part of the structure that supports the stations. Those fixes are in, and once the work is signed off, Hart will turn over the first 11 miles of the system to the city. Here's Kaikina. On June 9th, the first segment from East Kapolei to Halava Stadium, we're going to hand over. There's going to be a signing ceremony, mayor, board chair, council chair, Roger, of course. We're going to hand that system over to DTS. And it's, it's kind of bittersweet, and as I've been mentioning, it's, it's kind of like when your child graduates from high school and you're going to send them off to college. It's exciting, but it's also a bit sad. But it's very exciting to open up that, this first segment on June 30th. Well, you're not complete with the construction, yes. so you still have the yeah. hardest part ahead of you. Correct. Correct. So heart's not going away. We still need to finish the segment two and segment three. So segment two is from Halava to Middle Street. So that one we're slated to open in two years, in 2025. And then from Middle Street to uh, Kaka'ako, that's going to be in 2030, 2031 timeframe. So right now, we're doing the utility relocation in Dillingham and downtown. So... Uh, it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable for for your listeners and for the businesses out there, but we're trying our best to make it as, as smooth as possible for them. We've all been watching the train on the tracks. You folks have been, uh, you know, doing all the safety certifications. Where are we at with that? Yeah, so the safety certification, every all the stakeholders need to sign off. So not just HART, but we have DTS, HDOT, and FTA. So we are almost complete with that. The last step was the hammerheads. So the hammerheads are complete. All I need is the engineer of record to write me a letter this week that everything is done. The stations are safe for people to get on. That gets handed over to HDOT and DTS and FTA. And then I sign one last letter certification that this thing is complete and ready to open. Talk about the safety features that you've got because we're the first system that has a special area here where passengers can load onto the train so up up there on the platform there's platform gates i think we're the first one in the nation that we've installed it but others are probably starting to add it on because if you go to older systems you can just go straight from the platform onto the tracks but we are powered by a third rail, 750 volts, and it's very dangerous. If someone touches it, they instant death. So we have platform gates up there. They're about five foot high. And so when the train comes in, the center of the train doors and the center of the platform gates align perfectly, opens up simultaneously, and then people can safely get on. And the other features we have for ADA, I just went through having a broken leg. I was in a wheelchair and crutches myself. I came out here to test it. So the ADA people can get onto an elevator. The platforms to the train is straight across. So you don't have to worry about stepping up, stepping down. And then once you get into the train, because we're not like the bus, it's a straightaway, it's smooth, acceleration, deceleration. You're not strapped in. You just use your own wheelchair brakes. And there's an area for the wheelchairs where the, the seats fold up so that they have space for them. And the city is planning a day for our disabled community to come out this week on Friday. Yes, on June 2nd. So there will be different people that come out to help test the different features of the station and the train. You feel pretty confident with the fixes on the hammerhead cracks? Yes, I'm very confident. So what we did initially was we injected epoxy to seal the cracks. 
and smooth over them. But then there are eight columns that still needed to have post-post tensioning done because the cracks were a little bit too wide. On the ends of the hammerheads, and the hammerheads are like a T that support the stations, there's what we call end weldments. So there's a metal frame, and through that metal frame, there's a black like conduit where cabling is going all the way through to the other side. There's another end weldment on the other side, and it's it's tensioned. It's, it's cinched tight, just like a woman's girdle or a man's belt, cinched tight. And so that's what has solved the hammerhead issue. And going forward then for the other hammerheads that have not been constructed yet, I mean, I don't know if it was a design issue. Was it a construction issue? It was a design issue. And so we did check going forward. There wasn't enough rebar right where the step down was. And so we made sure we had the engineer of record for the airport section. Make sure you double check those numbers because we don't want to have the same issue going forward. And then no cost extra cost to the taxpayer. Is that correct? Okay, good question. I'm asked it all the time, including from my board. So Kiwit is the, it was a design build. So Kiwit is the contractor. HNTB is the design of record, engineer of record. All the cost to do this extra retrofit work, they bore the cost. I I don't know if they're going to file a claim, so I'm I'm not 100% telling you that no cost to the taxpayers. But as of right now, Hart hasn't spent anything on these retrofits. It's all been Kiwit and HNTB. Okay, and then I see another set of cars uh, coming through here. Yeah, so, I mean, it must be just pretty exciting for you to see this handoff. It is very exciting. And so the trains, we'll let you get on it. You'll have 20 seconds to get on it. But the trains are, they're air conditioned, they're clean, they're beautiful. There's about 188 seats, but we can fit about six to 800 passengers and it equates to 10 city buses. And the views, I have to say, are pretty spectacular this morning. Spectacular. It's very spectacular. Mayor talks about it all the time. So there will be a media day coming up mid-June that DTS is going to host with the mayor. And you folks can see how beautiful that view is because we're above grade. Compared to other systems that are at grade, we're above grade, above the traffic. And you can just see Malka and Makai. Just spectacular. You're ready to roll. Ready to roll. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. And we were allowed to jump on and off the rail cars as they pulled into the station. Those trains will, again, run every 10 minutes, so it'll be pretty frequent for riders. sounds of the train. And this morning, we also got a chance to talk with Hart Deputy Executive Director Rick Keene about the construction work on the remaining half of the system. We are working on the airport guideway section now. We anticipate within about two years, two years time, the next segment will open. It's another 5.2 miles and will include the airport. So that'll be a great way for people to the west side to be able to go all the way from Kapolei past the airport to Middle Street. So that'll be, you know, a, a huge boost in ridership, a huge boost in functionality of the system in about a two-year period of time. We're also, as you know, working on the utility relocations down Dillingham and downtown. We have a contract out 
in process right now, a procurement in process for the construction of the downtown guideway and stations. We're hoping to get that contract awarded within the next year or so. And then as soon as the utility uh, relocations are complete, we'll begin construction of the downtown segment. And hopefully what we've learned along this first 10, 11 mile track will help us in the tough part in town. Absolutely. We have a lot of ideas about things we can do different, more efficiently. We're encouraging the bidders in the, um, in the proposal process to come up with creative ideas on how to do things better and more efficiently, more cost effectively. So yeah, we're looking forward to that and there have been a, quite a few lessons learned. And as far as parking, I know folks were, were concerned about the park and ride. They're, they're concerned about Highlands parking structure. Yeah, that's something we still need to figure out. That particular design did not seem feasible. So we are looking at that right now. Hart has a scope that was set in our recovery plan that excludes that. So it's not first and foremost with us right now. Right now we're working on trying to get the rest of the railway completed. But we have been entertaining ideas. We have been talking to people. We have been kicking around things on how could we make this work. We've been looking at different designs on potential ways to construct a parking garage that would be less dense and less heavy, which may work better in that particular location. Or we've been looking at some some other sites outside of that immediate area that might work too. We don't have a solution yet, but we are committed to finding a solution to the, or the Pearl Highlands parking situation. Anything else just looking forward as we get closer into town? Oh, we're just excited about this. We think, um, you know, we'll get some momentum and a lot of maybe Uh, attitude change about people when they see the functionality of the trains. I think people will be really surprised about how quiet the trains are and how easy it is to access the trains. We've been here this morning conducting interviews and the trains, actually the traffic on the street is much, much louder than the trains are. So it's really interesting to see that. And we're just excited to get things going. That was Rick Kane, Deputy uh, Executive Director of HART. So there are lots of moving parts as HART and the city get this train system transferred and ready to welcome riders at the end of this month. Uh, you will be able to ride free from June 30th through July 4th holiday. We'll have more information in the weeks to come. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from The Creative City, featuring Jazz in the Park Encore at Dr. Sun Yat-sen Memorial Park in Chinatown tomorrow. Details at thecreativecity.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Amodama, author of Falling Open in a World Falling Apart. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the raw edge where spirituality meets humanity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, now flying direct to Fukuoka, Japan, three times per week. More information at hawaiianairlines.com.
It took eyes on the reef to flag a problem with a canoe race that was held on the Big Island this past weekend. A diver in Kailua Bay in Kona called the state about seeing damage on the reef after concrete blocks uh, that were used as, a, as temporary moorings for the regatta were placed in the water. This morning, we talked to Chris Teague, a biologist with the Land and Natural Resources, about damage to an estimated 60 coli, co- coral colonies. In the course of their dives that day, they ended up coming coming across two of these moorings. And so later that night, they sent some pictures to me and one of the local docare officers showing a couple of these cinder block moorings. There are two cinder blocks tied together with some concrete poured into them. And those went up, up to a line and up to a, a float that what well, looks to be like they can, they can attach some sort of surface marker, marker pieces attached to that. So they just didn't realize that this was not a good idea. From what I can tell, these races in the past have have just attached into existing moorings. So there's kind of a lot of old moorings that that are in Kailua Bay just from various things over the years. But it sounds like for the past 40 or so years, these regattas have have just tied into these blocks that have already been on the reef. They don't seem to be causing active new damage, those ones. But then for whatever reason, this season... Some of the canoe folks decided to put put in place new moorings, and that's what these ones are. So it sounds like they put a total of 28 brand new moorings, 16 of which were, were on Coral Reef. Well, it must have taken you some time to go through, you know, to see the actual damage that was caused. Yeah, so we did an initial assessment with docare officers on the day of the race. That's why you know, there were uh, numerous news reports about the regatta being paused for for a short period of time, that was so that we could go in and put uh, doe care officers in the water on with their you know, snorkels and masks just to get to kind of document how many of these individual blocks were actually sitting on coral and how many weren't. So that, that was our initial assessment. Several days later, on May 30th, our team with, with uh, DAR scuba divers went down and did a more thorough assessment of the damage. Um, and that took, took a, uh, about an entire day to do fully assess the amount of damage that was caused. And what types of coral are we talking about? There are two two main species that were affected. They're the uh, the finger coral, Parietes compressa, and the lobe coral, Parietes lobata. There were a couple other other species that were in the area um, that suffered minor damage, but uh, those are the two, two primary ones. And so uh, what happens now? I mean, obviously, we can use this as a teaching moment, not just for this canoe club and the the regatta, but for everybody statewide that is involved in in regattas about, you know, do's and don'ts. Of course, yeah. There's So there's a few things that'll end up happening. We'll write up our report documenting all of our findings. I'm going to submit that to our, our DAR and DLNR leadership, and it'll end up most likely going to the Board of Land and Natural Resources to to discuss what we end up doing with that information. Similar to other previous damage events, we'll work with the, the parties that were responsible and, and come up with, with a solution that kind of makes the most sense all around. So what what I would like to see come out of this, kind of regardless of, of any you know, punitive measures that the board may take, is really just to make a plan for the future. Because uh, you know, we, we want these canoe races to continue going on, but at the end of the day, our division and our department are responsible for, you know, ensuring the health of coral reefs. So in order to kind of have both of those work together, we can work with the, the canoe organization 
as well as the other other divisions within our department and other state agencies to come up with a long-term plan. And what that'll probably look like is some sort of permanent mooring pin structures that, that can be placed in into kind of dead reef structure or, or basalt that won't cause active damage in the future. So they can just kind of clip into these, these moorings anytime there's a race and then you know, unclip after the race is done and no additional damage need be caused. And as far as the damage that you were able to document and photograph, I mean, is there a way to be able to glue some of these coral heads back or was the damage not that extensive? I don't know that it's a matter of like the extent of it. It's more the species. So Parietes compressa, the finger coral, it's fairly difficult to glue back in place just because of the, uh, the way that coral is structured. Our team did attempt to wedge in place as much of the coral as they could given the time that they had. And in previous occasions when we've dealt with damage cases like this, we have you know, had some, some moderate success with that, just putting them in place and allowing them to sort of refuse onto the bottom. That being said, that's not a, you know, the be-all, end-all to it. So it, it will likely take upwards of, of one to two years, if not more, for, for these uh, corals to recover. Anything else you want to share with our listeners just about the health of our reefs and, you know, trying to prevent the damage, you know, to this living ecosystem? Sure. Yeah, I think overall, I think we all just need to keep in mind that that the corals in, in Hawaii are under, you know, a lot of varied stresses, most notably global climate change causing these, these massive heat wave events that lead to coral bleaching and, and other issues. And given that, you know, we need to be very cognizant of, of how we're interacting with, with the reefs in Hawaii. So any time that there's a possibility that coral could be damaged, it, it takes a long time to recover from that. So if, if there are actions that folks are doing that are, are likely to cause damage, folks can, can chat with us on, on finding alternatives to their plans or you know, talk with us about ways to minimize that damage or, or eliminate it entirely. Are there any administrative rules on the books when it comes to, you know, aquatic events and the do's and don'ts of mooring? Most of it is governed by the Division of Boating and Ocean Recreation. They have a permitting system for commercial activities like this. There's a, a permitting system in place that, you know, should regulate these types of events and, and do regulate these sort of events. The other the other rules that we have are, are primarily like it's illegal to, to damage coral, but that's sort of broader than the uh, these events in, in particular. Yeah, I'm just wondering about, you know, just if there's anything written about best practices and the rules of engagement before you put on a regatta or, or, or some or some kind of aquatic event. No, I don't, I don't really. think we have anything uh, written up okay. for that. I think this, this is the first time that I'm aware of that this has really come to light, primarily be, because they've, at least in Kailua Bay, they've, they've used those existing moorings and it hasn't right. really been an issue previously until these these new ones were placed. And then what was the name of the, uh, is, it, is it Founders Regatta? Yeah, the, the one today, or the one on this past weekend was yeah. the Founders Regatta. There was another regatta, I think, a week before that, and then there was another one planned for a couple weeks from now. But did the, the earlier one use the same kind of cinder blocks or not? Was this the first use of those things? That's that's another thing we're a little confused about. Like, it's not used clear exactly before? when these blocks were placed. Gotcha. Um, some reports that I got were saying that the, the blocks that we observed were actually placed you know, within the past three weeks mm. and were the ones that were used, and those were the ones that were used for the prior race. 
That was Chris Teague, a biologist with the Department of Land and Natural Resources, talking with us about recent damage to a big island reef uh, from a recent regatta. Our reality check today with our partners at Honlu Civil Beat features a story about a power struggle that played out in the waning days of the legislative session. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, this is quite a story you've written up here. Uh, yeah, it is quite a story, um, it, and it really is a power struggle. Uh, we have a, a handful of senators who... Uh, really are trying to get control of an executive agency, a somewhat obscure uh, entity called the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation. Um, And it looks like the reason is that the uh, corporation has the power and is trying to develop a a project in the district of the uh, Ways and Means Chairman Donovan Dela Cruz. So this is really what it seems to be about. Again, a fight over whether this obscure entity is going to develop a uh, campus for public safety workers in the senator's district. And your story uh, writes about how um, the senators basically targeted uh, Vasilis Sirmos, right? He's the, the head of that de- de- corporation. Right. He's on the board of of the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation. He's a vice president for innovation and research at UH. It makes a lot of sense that he would be on the board of this corporation. Um, The statute setting up the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation says a representative from University of Hawaii should be on it. It really makes sense that he uh, should be on it, but he has spoken out um, against the proposal to build this campus for public safety workers um, under the guise of some kind of technology development. He says it just doesn't really fit in the mission of the organization and has questioned why they should do it. Um, in response, uh, this session, the senator, Senator Dela Cruz and a few others, uh, basically uh, tried to change the statute uh, to eliminate uh, Vasilis Sirmos from qualifying to serve on this board. And you did talk to uh, at least one lawmaker who said that, yeah, in those waning hours of session, it was a direct hit against him. Yes, the the, the uh, Daniel Holt, the on the House side, said that he met with the senators and conference committee. Um, again, this provision against uh, the Silasirmos was put in. No debate, no discussion, no reason for it, and. Um, the senators told him, if you want funding for the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation for real economic development uh, initiatives it was trying to do, um, if you want that funding, then you're going to have to agree to go along with axing Vasilis Sirmos from the board. And so uh, what did uh, uh, Vasilis Sirmos say about this? Um, he, he has said – he said that he – that the uh, park 
campus makes in Mililani makes no sense. Um, it's really not within the mission of the organization. Other than that, um, he didn't want to comment. There is another thing going on in the background. The executive director of this uh, Hawaii Technology Development Corporation uh, resigned. And we're trying to figure out exactly why he, we weren't able to talk to him. But one of the questions is, was there a fight over this executive director with Senator Dela Cruz? Um, Vasilis Sirmos wouldn't comment on that. He said this is a personnel issue, personnel matter within the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation. It's not appropriate for us to comment on that. Well, gosh, it it, it is a, a head scratcher. Um, what did the uh, senators have to say? Did they re- respond to your inquiries? The senators did not respond to my inquiries. Um, Senator Dela Cruz has defended this uh, park. They call it a first responders, or they have a name a name for it that suggests that it's a technology entity. It, it's not. Um, He's defended it in the past, saying, well, they use technology. First responders use technology, um, so therefore it's justified. Well, so that's it, really – that's been their response. Yeah, and um, my understanding was the House didn't go along with the bill to um, fund this uh, park up there in Mililani, uh, but that uh, uh, Senator Dela Cruz managed to get some money in there for planning uh, in the budget. Yeah, he just – that's right. He just put in $50 million. They can do that. They have the authority to do it. The big question is, is the governor going to line item veto that $50 million that Donovan Dela Cruz slipped into the budget? And is he going to uh, veto this House bill that was really weaponized against this board member? Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, but yeah, definitely one to keep our eyes on. But thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Halaba Correctional Facility held a commencement ceremony recently for the first inmates to graduate from a new college degree program offered by Shamanag University. Among the eight participants who earned associate's degrees in business administration was Big Island native Kelson Akeo. Akeo was convicted of kidnapping and secondary sexual assault in 2019. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. This morning, the Conversations' Russell Subiono got a chance to talk to Akeo about this two-year program. How did it work? Was the classroom online or did professors come in? When did you make time to do the reading and writing for the course? Give us an overview of how it worked out. In our first semester when we started, we was actually in a quarantine, fully quarantine lockdown. And it's a prison. We have nothing but time. So it was easy. We had so much time on our hands. So doing the work was really, it was simple. They gave us basic step-by-step instructions for us to follow. All the professors did that. But the hard part was we kind of had to self-teach ourselves. This is all new for all 18 of us. We started off with 18 of us, and we only ended with eight. It was a struggle. It really was. We had to teach ourselves, and this is a very hostile environment. We may have time, but it's loud. It's very belligerent in prison. So this wasn't the most accommodating of environments to be doing learning, but we did it anyway. That's what makes this program so flexible because they worked with this. 
and the teachers, professors, they will come in. We first started off with Zoom, just like how we're doing. They started off with Zoom on our smart board. And then over time, when they lifted the lockdowns, then our professors started coming in. Then we had physical one-on-one classes with them. And that's when I really, that's when all of us really got into it. And we really enjoyed it. And that's when we were treated humanely. We were treated like normal people that had freedom. Sorry. <laughs> Being locked up and having that sense of freedom for a bit. He's the one who, people who has lost it. And I know it's our fault. We chose to commit our crimes and come into this place. We did. But then to be treated inhumanely, to be looked at as nothing but stripes and cattle with numbers, these teachers, they made us feel good morally, mentally, physically, spiritually. And that's why this program for me was a life changer. And to all the professors that took their time, and there was no bias. That was the best part, too, about these professors. They didn't judge us. And we even... We got to the third semester and we found out that teachers at Shamanad were fighting to get into this program just because they wanted to teach us. They saw the change and the growth in us and they wanted to be a part of that. Hearing that shows that we do matter out there and that this program meant, this program did so much of a difference to a lot of us. That's why we all, the ones, the graduating class is so appreciative to, to sticking it out, to the professors willing to stick it out with us, to endure this Subject to change, as Halawa likes to call it. We learned at our own pace. It was quick, though. We had to pick it up fast. And we had this one professor, Miss Baxter. So we had her twice. So the first semester we had her, she was like, she was real lenient. But then when we had her for the next semester, she was like, hey, I ain't going to treat you no different. I'm going to treat you like my students. I expect you to get the job done. And that's what we liked. We liked that. We didn't get treated no differently. But... For me, that's how the experience was for a lot of us, I believe. When the announcement was made for this program, why did you decide to participate? I actually didn't want to participate. But Mrs. Roseanne saw otherwise. She's like, I want to put you into this program. I'm like, do I have to? She's like, I want you to try it. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So she puts me in, and then next thing I knew, I seen all these other students coming in, and they felt so proud of being in this, and i like, you know what? I want to jump on their bandwagon. I want to feel proud I'm in this program. I want to commit. I think for me, once I committed that I want to do this program to better me and to also make my parents proud and to make others out there see that just because I committed a terrible crime, that's not all that I am. That's not all that I am. I don't want to be looked at as this criminal committed this. I want to be looked at a person who came into a correctional facility yeah, a correctional facility, and corrected myself because our staff doesn't do it. Our ACOs don't do it. They approach us with bias. So the only way I can do it is me choosing to correct myself. And that's what this program did to me. It changed my mentality. It changed the way I view the world. And it makes me step back and realize that I am capable. Were you able to have some family come to the graduation ceremony? Were your parents able to come? We did. Each oh, one of us, we were, we were allowed two visitors to the, to the commencement. For me, I haven't seen my family since I came in. But it was amazing to allow them to come in and we were able to hug, embrace, give kisses on the cheeks, sit down and have a little had cupcakes with them. Is this a reunion of this tears and joy? It really was. It was amazing. When people on the outside first hear about this program, there will probably be several types of reactions. 
There will likely be people who support the idea. They will see how this is a commitment to self-improvement and gives you opportunities to make a life for yourself when you are released. How do you think this kind of educational opportunity would impact inmates returning to society if it were offered more broadly? I would impact drastically. It really would. Because in here, it would show that if you're willing to commit to an education program in here, like Shamanad or a drug rehabilitation program, and you love it, that's what it is. I built a love for this program, for education. Now, that's kind of all I want to do when I get out. I want to obtain my bachelor's and my master's. But in order for me to do that, I have to keep myself on a steady path. I can't veer off. I can't go back to the old lifestyle I had because that's going to just recidivate me. It's going to bring me back in here. But this program is going to change people's mindset to know that. Once you find a love for, for this education like what I did, that's all I want now. And this will help them stay on a good path. So they will show that you're not doing dead time. You're trying to change your life. You want to better it. So when you get back to society, you have a better life. I was also interested in what you would say to people who did wonder why criminals are being given an opportunity to get a free education when plenty of people on the outside want to go to college but don't have the means. What Mm -hmm. would you say to those people? What I would say to those people is we were given this opportunity of change and we took it. We took this opportunity. If someone were to offer you out there, oh, we'll pay for your whole college, I guarantee you're going to jump on it and just take it. But I know this is also how they look at it as it's a privilege to have this. Because just as fast as they gave it to us, we were threatened by a lot of staff and they can take it right away, right then and there. We're just going to cancel your program. We don't care. You guys are inmates. We don't, we don't care about this. Anytime we can just cancel. But to those who say, what gives us the right to have a privileged opportunity? We need something to change our lives. We need a big opportunity for us to grasp and lock onto in order for us to change our lives. I understand it's education should be, you know, obtained your own way. You should be able to pay for something of it. But for us, we were given a free opportunity and we pounced on it. We took it. People join the military. They join the military because they pay for your schooling. That is another way to look at it. But I'm not saying come to prison to pay for your schooling. That's a bad way of thinking of it. But it was just a good opportunity and we took it. People that go to prison, when they do get released they tend to kind of follow two paths, right? They either, you know, are able to build a new life and and move on from their past, or they kind of fall back into Mm -hmm. old routines. And I've heard this from people who help women get out of the sex trade. Part of that program is to put them into school or into some kind of vocational training so that they don't fall back into old habits. So they have the new tools or new opportunities to, make a life for themselves moving forward. And when we talk about inmates that do get released and they do encounter challenges when they integrate into society, when you think about your degree and the kind of opportunities that your degree gives you now, what kind of new goals and aspirations do you have for the future? My goal is first off to get out of prison as my first future future goal and to stay on my straight, narrow path as possible. I don't want to veer back, go out and start smoking weed again, drinking belligerently. So with this, it not only gives me higher standards of want to obtain more education, but it also gives me coping skills. So I stay away from that extra roads and pathways like you were saying. So that's on the back of everyone's mind when they pull up. Oh, am I going to go back in? 
well, screw it. I'll just max out. But for me, I don't want to think like that. I had those thoughts in prison. Like, I'm just going to just do my time. But really, really, I want to go home. I I just want to go home. That is the main part of my future. And with this education, I hope, I, I not hope, I know it's going to keep me steady. It's going to show the people out there that I corrected myself. I obtained something with this dead time I was given. Yeah, make something at a good time. My brother told me this when I got locked up. My older brother Kyle told me, hey, when you go in there, take advantage of every opportunity they give you. And that's exactly what I did to better me so I can make a good life for myself when I get out there so I can just be a humble neighbor to you. And that's my future ambition is to be a productive citizen in society again. And this program allows me to do that. It allowed me to fixate on a higher education too when I get out. Like I said, I want to get a, I want to at least get my, I want to get my bachelor's in communications, and I plan on going to Shaman instead of doing that. But for my future ambitions, it's really just to maintain a good livelihood, so I don't ever have to be within these concrete walls ever. That was Halava inmate Kelson Akeo talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about graduating with his associate's degree from Shamanad University last month. Support for HPR comes from Broadway in Hawaii, presenting the national touring production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Cats. Opens Tuesday, June 13th at the Blaisdell Concert Hall. Tickets at broadwayinhawaii.com. Iraq's date palm trees have been threatened by war and now by climate change. Efforts are underway to reverse the trend. They are finding different grassroots tactics to keep their trees alive and also to keep the date economy alive and maybe even grow it back. Efforts to save Iraq's iconic date palms next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today marks a year since Maui resident David Rotz returned home after going through living liver donor surgery last May. He initially wanted to donate his kidney, but pivoted after going through extensive medical testing on Maui and the Queens Medical Center. He was rejected in the final round due to a low kidney filtration score. Working through the surprise and the disappointment, Rotz discovered another avenue to fulfill his commitment to share the gift of life. We Hanaho his story. The avid tennis player and deputy director of council services for Maui County sat down with the Conversations Lillian Song to share his journey of becoming a living liver donor. I was momentarily distraught, but then I felt like there had to be an avenue for me to become a living organ donor. So I went online and I found out about somebody who had been disqualified for living kidney donation and they turned around and became a living liver donor which I hadn't considered before. And I looked it up and I became very impressed with the effectiveness 
of living liver donation on the recipients. It's a life-saving surgery. And I was also impressed with the quality of treatment that donors receive. And I really couldn't find a reason not to want to be a living liver donor. The only challenge was I couldn't find anyone in Hawaii who performs those types of transplants. So I did find the University of Southern California, which happens to be my undergraduate alma mater. They have an excellent program where they've been doing living liver donations for 24 years now with a great track record of success. It was probably January 3rd or 4th when I applied to USC. They then flew me to Los Angeles in March for two and a half days of really intensive tests. I didn't get my hopes up too high this time because I'd been rejected as a kidney donor. So I was very pleased when they called me in April and approved me. And surgery was set for May, May 18th. And they had me arrive in town about a week ahead of time to go through final testing and do COVID quarantine. Had the surgery, stayed in the hospital for five nights, which is about normal. Kept me in town another nine nights just to make sure my recovery was going as planned. Thankfully, I got the green light on May 31st, flew back to Maui. And I've discovered through this process that the liver is an amazing organ. Essentially, through the transplant process, one liver becomes two. The surgical team took out part of my liver and placed it in the recipient. And that portion of my liver is now growing into a functioning liver in the recipient. My liver has grown back to full size and full function. So it's really an incredible process. And I don't pretend to completely understand how it works other than I know that it provides benefit to the recipient and no loss to the donor. Usually donors are family members or close family friends of somebody who's in need. Was there somebody close to you that had the need for organ donation? No. I understand there's a long waiting list, which is one reason I felt compelled to get involved in the program. And it's called non-directed living organ donation, where the organ will just go to whoever needs it the most at at the appropriate time and place. It's been described as a form of effective altruism. That was one of the terms that was used when I was originally being exposed to the concept. It's a humbling experience, an incredible honor to be able to allow myself to be a vessel, if you will, for something that will really make the difference in somebody's life. And, you know, all I did was say yes to go along to this ride, and then I let the medical professionals take it from there. How was the quality of life after you donated part of your liver? Physically, there's really no difference. There there was a period of recovery for about two months where I had to limit my physical activities. I had to have friends and loved ones help me carry things and things like that. But over the long term, I've noticed no difference. I would say emotionally or psychologically, there's been a difference in that I feel somehow more connected to the rest of the world by being able to participate in this process. So from my perspective, nothing but benefits. You know, if someone can't become a living liver donor, there's other ways to help. In fact, one of the screening questions was, 
have you ever donated blood? And the theory is, if you haven't donated blood, you're probably not ready to donate part of an organ. But most people are able to donate blood, and that's a life-saving and very altruistic gesture. And I would encourage others to consider that as a way to help folks, again, without really having to sacrifice much of anything, but having the opportunity to make a big difference for somebody else. You know, I gave something of myself in a physical sense, but I feel like I received back in, in various forms much more than I gave. So, again, that's another reason why I feel compelled to tell the story as much as I don't really like a lot of public attention necessarily on a regular basis. But because I have this story to tell, I'm glad for the opportunity to share my story with others. And then also just sharing in your recovery, you had a very wonderful circle around you to help you heal. Who were those people that were able to support you to also follow through on this decision? That's an important part is support networks. I was in a privileged position to be able to do this because, as I mentioned, I was off island for about three weeks. Thankfully, there's a state statute that provides for paid time off for state and county employees, such as myself, who do organ donations. So that was a huge help. There was also a national nonprofit that covered all of my travel and lodging expenses. And then my partner here on Maui, Shelly Harris, took care of my cats while I was away, which was my biggest concern about the whole process, frankly, being away for that long. So I'm eternally indebted to her for that. And in California, my Aunt Lois Humphreys and my cousin Heather Underhill live in Southern California, so they were able to visit me at the hospital and get me checked out and get me set up at a hotel across the street from the hospital. I'm deeply indebted to them for that as well. And the coworkers who covered for me when I was gone for a period of time and just the, the moral support from close friends and just my fellow board members at Leilani Farm Sanctuary of Maui, they offered a lot of moral support along the way. So it does take a network of friends, loved ones, and, of course, strangers. The, the folks at USC who I'd never met before, surgical team treated me wonderfully, all offered a lot of support, of course, with their medical expertise, but also their moral support. So I felt pretty good throughout the whole process. First day or two, probably, after the surgery was a little bit of a challenge. It was a major surgery. I mean, I was under general anesthesia for about six or seven hours. And just recovering from that takes a certain amount of time. And then your liver has to start regrowing and gaining function. But it all went really well. And I'm just happy to share my positive experience in the hopes that other folks will consider becoming living organ donors themselves. That was Maui resident David Rotz with Lillian Sang. Rotz became a living liver donor on May 18, 2022. He was cleared to fly home after two weeks of recovery, and today we celebrate his one-year anniversary back home. Rotz says his six-month checkup went fine. He's feeling great. He also joined Oregon Transplant Maui, a support group where donors, recipients, caregivers, and prospective recipients meet up every first Saturday of the month. 
And that's this weekend at Kaiser in Wailuku. We'll share links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That's it for us today. Up tomorrow, who done it? We plan to hear from a local author of Detective Stories. Give us some feedback. If you got questions about something you heard on the show, you can call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you want to listen back to something you heard, find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.